0: Mike, I I want to go ahead and start. So clearly, a good segue from Chairman Gensler. We've seen a significant uptick in regulation by enforcement, obviously increased rhetoric from government officials. The Treasury called crypto a threat to national security last week. And even the IMF today uh, was calling for nations to come together to protect consumers. But Bitcoin's casually pushed above 30,000. Why do you think that Bitcoin is ignoring all of this bad news and continues to uh, push upward?
1: Listen, I I think, and I said this this morning on CNBC, that the bulk of the buying uh, in this rally up has come from the crypto community, right? People that had sold before, new people in the crypto community, retail-driven, Asia-driven. And what started this whole movement was a breakdown of trust with central authority, right? With banks, with central banks, with governments. And so when you see what's... seems to be, or at least feels to us, as an unfair application of enforcement Uh, when you see banks like Silicon Valley Bank here today gone tomorrow. There's so many things that play into that classic original crypto narrative. It's in lots of ways galvanized crypto. I mean, that and there's a macro backdrop, right? We're going to have a credit crunch in America that's going to be pretty severe. Uh, That's in the cards. And so the Fed will be cutting rates by the third quarter um and you know you're seeing gold and bitcoin and you know and the dollar uh all reacting like it it smells something you know i think gold takes out two thousand convincingly it goes to three thousand and you know that's a big move that will correspond with bitcoin you know making a a much bigger move than we've seen but i think that's it yeah and and um almost you know every regulatory push is met with oh you got to be kidding and fighting back harder
0: do you think that the that the industry has the war chest to continue that fight that we're big enough and a meaningful enough sort of constituency to continue that if we continue to see this uptick in enforcement Well, listen
1: adoption you know, broad crypto adoption often accelerates with price, right? The way it works is, you know, you've got your Bitcoin, it's going up, you get so excited, you just start telling your neighbor and your cab driver. And 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 so you're going to see adoption accelerate with price. And so I think that part will help. Um, I think institutions are going to still go slow. Listen, the, the I had a, a breakfast with a, a very senior um, uh, Democrat last week. And he was like, Guys, let's just be clear. Your industry picked or didn't pick but had Sam Bankman Freed as your representative to DC, to the SEC, to the CFDC, to all the regulators, and he turned out to be a fraud. And everybody, you know, had to back away a little bit because they've got political cost to having taken his checks and been supportive. And I mean, you think of someone as influential as Maxine Waters, you know, she was 15 photographs with Sam. Uh, and so even though she might still like Bitcoin, she's gonna have to like it a little quieter uh, until this you know, time heals. And that has given in lots of ways a window for the people that don't like crypto, right? For Sherrod Brown, for Elizabeth Warren, uh, to raise their voices. For Gary, who seems to be very aligned with Elizabeth Warren, um, and then, kind of the new anti crypto constituent, I think, is, is the Treasury, is Yellen and, and Lil Brainerd uh, over at the White House. And I think a lot of that comes from, um, listen, when Balaji says, I think crypto's going to a million and screw the banks and screw the dollar, that doesn't help. Uh, it might help galvanize the crypto community. But if you're in charge of the dollar, you're saying, hey, some of our smartest guys on the West Coast are now. Literally unpatriotically claiming for the demise of the dollar and, and, you know, the demise of our banking system. And so you got to be careful what you cheer for, um, because it has, you know, it has political ramifications, right? I, I do think, uh, you know, I always say, I go to bed praying for a good stewardship of our, our economy because, if Bitcoin goes to a million, we're going to lose civil society here, right? We don't want to live in a, in a country with Bitcoin at a million in the next six months because uh, it would look really ugly. And, you know, they, the, the Secretary of Treasury and the Central Bank Governor have a really hard job to do with the amount of debt we have. We had this debt orgy for years, and I don't think they're going to be able to land the plane without inflating away a bunch of the debt. That's why I'm long a lot of Bitcoin. But I certainly don't want to happen in an accelerated fashion. It could. I just I don't want it to. And I think that's where Treasury's reticence is coming. And so, again, I think it's really stupid that the government is taking this approach. Um, I think it's short sighted. Every time you put up walls, they don't seem to work. (laughs) Um, But that's where it's coming from. And our hope really is you've got uh, Tom Emmer and McHenry on the on the Republican House side. That are digging in and are going to try to at least try to hold, you know, the SEC and, and regulators accountable. Uh, that's noise, really. And then we have got the courts, uh, which for the most part are nonpartisan, uh, not completely nonpartisan. <laughs> um, and you hope, I mean, you know, again, I, Chris is going to have a far, far better view of this than I will, but like just reading through what I've learned about Paxos's Wells notice or, or, or claim base is, you know, in the, in the old days you got a Wells notice, you were literally out of business and your life was ruined. And now I, you know, I, I take my chances at a casino on those guys winning their cases, um, or at least selling for something small and moving on. Um, and so I'm a little worried that the first big case that's going to get, you know, adjudicated is the Ripple case. Um, because that's a little less clear to me on how that's going to go. Listen, full disclosure, we own, uh, and it's on our balance sheet and disclosed, uh, equity in Ripple, the company. And so uh, as much as people think I I don't like XRP, I'm cheering for Ripple to win that case. Be loud and clear, I want them to win. Um, uh, But I worry about that one because if we lose that, people are going to be like, oh, we're going to lose all the cases. And I think you've got to be very careful – that, you know, each one of these things and, you know, is taken separately and you and you read the fine, the fine print of the of the ruling.
0: Anyway, I've been talking too long. I'll shut up.
1: Yeah. Well, Mike, I,
0: I agree with your point that uh, this is galvanizing the community. Even when I had Sailor on uh, three weeks ago, I asked him the same question about Bitcoin <coughs> pushing above 30,000. And he said, I would love to say it's mainstream adoption, but it's about a bunch of crypto people moving into Bitcoin, which is exactly what you said. As for Balaji's bet, he uh, even came on this show last week and said, I burned a million to tell people that they were printing trillions. So he (laughs) openly admitted he also didn't expect us to be living uh, in the Mad Max dystopian future in in 90 days. But I I do want to pivot to Chris because there's a lot to unpack there with what Mike just said, obviously. Uh, When you were CFTC commissioner, there was an air of acceptance surrounding crypto. You were affectionately... Dubbed Crypto Dad. We had Brian Brooks at the OCC who made a significant push for institutions to be able to custody crypto assets, obviously, for banks to be able to test stablecoins as a competitor to Swift. Well, we've obviously seen a wholesale reversal in tone. Mike touched on the fact that there's a lot of egg on the faces of legislators and regulators who met with SBF. That could be the reason. Do you see this as a result of? All of that contagion in sbf in 2022 or is this simply regime change what do you make of this complete reversal seemingly in the regulatory uh, approach to crypto
2: yeah uh you know uh, i think it was gandhi who talked in talking about wholesale societal change said uh at first they ignore you then they ridicule you then they fight you and then you win I think Brian Brooks and I were in Washington at, at from the end of the ignore you to the beginning of the ridicule you phase, but before the wholesale fight you phase. I think we're in the fight you phase right now. You know, I was at Stanford University last week. I was visiting uh, his uh, financial historian, Neil Ferguson. Many of you know him from his books, The Ascent of Money or the 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 square and the tower, Uh, his name is spelled N-I-A-L-L, but it's pronounced Neil. And we were talking about um, his concept, historical concept of networks. You know, what what this technology is about, it's about financial digital networks. Uh, And yet, you know, as a historian, he goes back throughout human history and identifies uh, networks. And he uses the, the image of the medieval city of Siena that has a large public square, that's the square in this title, overseen by a tall tower. And he uses that as an analogy for hierarchical networks uh, which have been throughout most of human history. And then the occasional, um, uh, uh, sorry, I said verti- I meant vertical networks in, in the image of the tower and horizontal networks, more democratic, people-driven networks. And whenever there is a technological breakthrough, it often begins as a as a as a horizontal um, popular network, but then evolves into more of a hierarchical structure. What I'm getting at is, I think where we are in the crypto evolution. You know, our traditional financial system is quite hierarchical, and in many ways, what Dodd Frank was was the victory of Washington over Wall Street. The, the belief that hierarchies um, will allocate capital. Um, uh, as opposed to having it more market-driven, and the hierarchies that control our financial system now, it's not that they don't understand the power of of digital networks and which is what crypto is. They understand it very, very well. The concern is a loss of that hierarchical control—the control of how capital is allocated to whom, for what purposes, and and when—and I think the battle we're facing right now is by those hierarchies that presume to have a control, a control over how capital is formed how capital is allocated and it's not that they don't understand the power of crypto they understand it very well and they understand its democratizing uh, function and 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 the taking away of that hierarchical control and i think a lot that's a lot of what's driving phase we're in right now. But again, going back to Gandhi, as Gandhi said, eventually, you can't stop this technology. Eventually the technology will prevail. It will prevail because a lot of the constituents of that hierarchical structures will bring it about. It's not that, you know, JP Morgan may have its CEO say one thing, but the fact of the matter is JP Morgan, Banking New York Mellon, NASDAQ, I mean, all the traditional names are moving into this in a big way. This technology will come and the hierarchies will adjust, but before they adjust, they will fight, and that's what the phase we're in right now.
0: So the pessimistic view then there is that the current regime is effectively clearing a path for the bigger Wall Street players to control the industry. I don't
2: know if it's as direct as that, but there's no question that the, the focus of you know, if we if we if we use the the Gandhi analogy, we're in the fight stage. The focus of the fight is then against the new entrants. Um, the, the, the 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 incumbents are busily working away at this, while in many ways their public announcements are antagonistic. But their actions, uh, their their investment is ongoing, and and that's fine because because both incumbents and new entrants should be at work. This new technology is something that that as a society we should want this this will enable us to break down the silos that exist in our financial system that 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 are a drag on our economy that are that that pose costs to those least able to bear it that are barriers to financial inclusion for many societies this technology offers the answers to that by moving our financial services financial system into digital networks with greater efficiency greater uh, capability Now, it, it also has some, some, some challenges built into it unquestionably, and we've seen um, uh, fraudsters take advantage of it. But, you know, fraudsters are not, <laughs> and money go together, whether it's digital money or analog money. The dollar is the most, the, in its current form, is the most used instrument in financial crime in the world, and, and, and that doesn't undermine its importance. And similarly, uh, the fact that this is taken advantage of by fraudsters doesn't undermine its potential. Uh, uh ability to transform finance and add efficiency but but until that until that is clear we're we're in this resistance phase but you know uh i liken like in um uh service in, in in leadership positions to a conveyor boat you know eventually the septuagenarians that are uh, uh uh at the head of our of our institutions whether they be government or financial will we'll fall off the conveyor belt one, by one way or the other, and they'll be replaced by a generation that grew up in a networked society that understand digital networks. And it, this is more of a cultural thing than anything else. It's no surprise that the septuagenarians that grew up in a world of branch banking and, and three-day check settlement and, and banking hours from nine to five are intimidated by a 365 uh, world that is much more open and inclusive but yet they will yield as as, as they always do you know uh, uh, doug adams the author of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy series of books one of my favorite has a quote that i like to use he said that anything that's invented uh, before you turn 35 is something of a lifelong fascination it may indeed become the basis of your career but anything that's invented after you turn 35 is dangerous suspect and needs to be repressed And I think we've got a lot of just generational resistance to this change because for them, Hey, there's nothing wrong with branch banking. It works. You know, I can write my check. I can use my debit card. I can use credit cards. You know, life is good. Why do we need a new, a new architecture of finance, a a digital network based architecture of finance, but for people, you know, that grew up in in, in digital networks, they understand the power of this and they're not going to turn away from it. You know, what what's not going to happen, I can tell you right now, what's not gonna happen is young people are not gonna come away from all of this enforcement action, all of these publications coming out of the federal government and global financial bodies saying, beware of crypto. They're not gonna say, you know what, my grandparents were right. Branch banking is way cool. I'm gonna start writing checks, I'm gonna use debit cards, all that all that old technology is cool again. That's not gonna happen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and they're certainly not going to buy gold uh, and ETFs, right? And I'll and due respect to Douglas Adams, but uh, all three of us are pretty screwed if the age is 35. <laughs> I'm 46. <so laughs> uh, hold on, I identify does, as, does, that, as that Gen i I'd <laughs> like, like, like to make I that, make I, that I point for the record. Well, make Mike, what do you think here? Uh, you obviously, I think you probably straddle both industries pretty well between Wall Street and, and, and the crypto industry. Do you think that this is an attempt, uh, you know, either intentional or otherwise to sort of move the industry into the conventional system, to move it to the Nasdaqs and Fidelities and JP Morgans of the world? Or do you think that that's just sort of uh, the optics So at this
1: here's point? the depressing piece. I, you know, I've been spending more time with politicians and there are probably 15 politicians between Democrats and Republicans, House and Senate that care about crypto <laughs> out of 565. Uh, and so we've done a pretty miserable job as an industry of of bringing our electeds along. Uh, and maybe I'm a little pessimistic. Maybe it's a little bigger number than that, but it's not a lot. We don't have a lot of champions. And so it's not that people are like, oh, let's kill crypto or not kill crypto. It's just not that important of an issue to a lot of our electeds, right? Yeah. And and now you've got debt ceiling and, you know, war in Ukraine and, and the banking crises. And so, uh, it's left this vacuum for, for Gary, uh, and Elizabeth Warren and Elizabeth Warren cares about it a lot for some reason. It doesn't make any intuitive sense to me. And I'm a, I'm a, you know, some people would call me progressive. I'm certainly a center left Democrat. Um, her stance doesn't make sense, uh, to me. And, but she is calling the shots in a lot of ways. And so, I'm optimistic that with a little bit of work on our side, uh, we do have some champions that we need to support them, that we need to continue to educate people that will at least get a stalemate um, in the in the uh, congressional side. And, you know, Gary won't be in that job forever. Uh, you know, elections change things. Um, people's ambitions change things. Um, and the courts have a lot to say in this. And so... I think kind of our best, our best scenario is a little bit of rope-a-dope for a while. And during that time, really working on trying to build constituency. Um, listen, do the banks like having the chance to catch up? The banks don't really worry in the short run about Bitcoin and Ethereum. What they worry about is tokenization. And so each of, you know, J.P. Morgan wants to be the tokenization bank. Apollo wants to be the tokenization player. Uh, Goldman Sachs, and they have big staffs that are working on this. None, to be fair, nothing's been tokenized yet. Um, but the the tokenization idea resonates like crazy. And they all think, every asset manager we talked to, you know, BlackRock, Invesco, you name them, don't think they can miss out on tokenization. And so that's kind of what's bringing them closer to crypto, not... Decentralized, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, and so it's interesting. I I do think there's still a lane. I think companies like Coinbase and the retail side, and companies like our our own Galaxy, are really important because we're the on ramps to bring people into the system. And so you can't just have a completely decentralized system. You need ways to to both educate people and bring people in. Uh, it certainly has made my business harder, and we're moving more and more, uh, you know, people offshore. Uh, you know, the Hong Kong uh, regulatory environment is getting more friendly. Abu Dhabi, uh, France, lots of places, right? The UK. Um, and so I do think it's a competitive disadvantage for the US soon enough. Uh, but you can't give up on the US because we really do need the US to come up with some rational policies. And listen, they do have the power to, to make your life miserable. I mean, you know, Chad Pascarilla at Paxos had a you know, DFS approve, you know, he, he's as compliant as anyone I know. And next thing you, he gets a, a Wells notice out of nowhere. Um, not pleasant. Uh huh. And so, you know, you, you can't live without the U S especially if you're U S based. <laughs> and so it's certainly frustrating. And I don't think the banks are like lobbying like crazy, but they certainly when asked, you know, Jamie Dimon, him all the time, he's like, well, I blockchain, sorry, but Bitcoin, I don't get it. It's like, listen, there are 160 million people that have already decided to take some of their hard-earned wealth and store it in this technology run by a community. And that includes some of the smartest investors I've ever met, Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Jones, Abby Johnson, Jeff Yass uh, from Susquehanna, like world-class investors. So I always Turn the question around. I'd like to ask Elizabeth Warren, though she won't meet with me. It's like Elizabeth, you're you're so sure of yourself. Do you think all these people are stupid? Do you think I'm stupid because I trust this community? Like Mike, let, I, let me I, take a, a shot at that. Maybe I could because because
2: I, I was talking before about this notion of hierarchical structures. I, I think the barrier for some of these people who aren't who are clearly not stupid. And I include Elizabeth Warren in that is that we, we've moved away from the sort of Milton Freeman belief of 30 years ago that the best allocator of capital is the market itself, not because it's always right, but because it's more democratic, to a world where I think there's a growing sense that the market has failed and uh, certainly certainly certain communities, and therefore we need a political input into the allocation of capital. And I think that it's, 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 this this view, this anti-crypto army, view is that crypto takes power away from those hierarchies in terms of allocating capital and, re- and makes it more democratic. And I think that's where the resistance is. There's a feeling that they need to remain uh, uh, arbiters of how capital is allocated, at least broadly speaking. And, and I think this uh, crypto threatens that.
0: But how does an anti-crypto army at all appeal to a progressive base? I'm with Mike there that I certainly don't understand it at all. I can certainly understand her push for, I guess, regulation and and control. But to go outwardly and outrightly anti-crypto doesn't seem to appeal to anyone. I don't think there's a voter base that is voting on hating crypto. There's certainly a voter base that's voting on... Loving it, so uh, it's just very confusing to me. And obviously, anyone who's progressive should uh, support a money that uh, supports people who are underbanked or unbanked, or or, and gives or, or, them or more a technology that
1: allows artists to monetize their creativity through you know NFTs and and so many other ways. Musicians. Uh, the one thing that I think is is clear though is you know Elizabeth Warren likes to harp on all these consumers that have lost their money. the The government has done a terrible job protecting the consumer, but our industry has also done a horrible job protecting the consumer, right? We've not had proper disclosure. And I'm sure, like, when I think of uh, BlockFi or or, uh, Celsius or Voyager, my guess is if you read through their disclosures, they didn't do anything that they didn't say they were allowed to do. But if you polled 400 of their retail investors, I'm doubting those investors thought they were – making a, you know, uh, an unsecured loan to a 50 times levered asset liability mismatched hedge fund, right? <laughs> they thought they were depositing their money like they were depositing it in a bank. Uh, and so, you know, kind of shame on us as an industry for the amount of stupidity, bad risk management at times, fraud, greed that that caused so much dislocation. But quite frankly, shame on like the SEC knew about all that stuff and didn't do anything. Uh, the SEC allowed a, you know, a grayscale ETF, knowing that it could that it was trading at a 30 percent premium and then a 30 percent discount. And hedge funds were arbitraging the ETF and wouldn't allow if they had allowed a normal ETF early on. Grayscale would have never grown to those giant heights. Uh, right. And and so, you know, there's. There's dirt on both, both sets of hands. There's dirt on our community for, for behaving like, you know, imbeciles. Uh, but there's also dirt on the regulators for, you know, not, not protecting the consumer one bit. And so it's a bit rich that Elizabeth Warren loves to point and others love to point to, ah, they screwed the consumer. I'm like, (laughs) like your, your job if you're the SEC is to protect the consumer. Uh, and so that has been frustrating. Put in a plug for what we did
2: at the CFTC because what we decided was not to push the application away to create a bitcoin future but to engage with it to adapt our 90 year old rule set to accommodate it and allow the launch of the bitcoin futures market within the regulated CFTC environment and you know five years later the proof is in the pudding that that marketplace is well regulated it's transparent it's it's liquid um, it's it's evolved to new products that meet customer demand. It's worked very very well, and it's right here in the United States is the leading big, uh, futures market for Bitcoin and Ethereum, operating under regulatory supervision with very little, um, uh, virtually no fraud manipulation. It's operating as it was intended, as as we in the regulatory state um, uh, uh, formed it to do. So. It's it's funny, it's a, it's a little uh, noted success story, but it does prove that regulators, if they're willing to engage with crypto, willing to adapt old rule sets to accommodate it, can actually bring to market a very successful product that takes consumer interests and investor concerns into account.
1: And bravo to that.
0: Absolutely. And and Mike, then to your point about Grayscale, you sort of talked about how a lot of this will be litigated and we'll see what the judicial system has to say about it. It actually seems that in their case, Grayscale has been getting somewhat favorable opinions or at least commentary from the courts. And I think it's an important reminder that we give off often here that uh, just because a regulator says it's true doesn't mean it is until (laughs) the the legal system says it.
1: I literally said that on TV this morning. I was like, come on. You can you can approve a futures ETF, but not a cash ETF. Like it just makes like zero common sense, and I think that's what the judge at least hinted to. Like he was like, "What are you guys talking about?" <laughs>
0: you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. But interestingly, there's some fear that if uh, Grayscale wins, that actually it could cause pushback against the futures <laughs> ETF rather than a spot ETF approval, which to me seems utterly upside. Yeah. Down. You know. The other thing that I I I, I was
1: pushing on Democrats and pre-FTX, they all got it. And now they're kind of stuck and scared a little bit, is that being anti-Bitcoin, being anti-crypto is really not smart from a, I want to get elected perspective, right? I don't know. You tell me what the number is, 40 million or 60 million, but some large amount of Americans have a crypto uh, wallet and own some crypto. Um, And a decent portion of them are rabid DGen crypto single issue voters, um, right? I, I talked to a lifelong Democrat this morning uh, who is wealthier than than most people are lucky enough to be, who said, "That's it. I'm only supporting Republicans, and I'll and I'll make big donations to the ACLU uh, and uh, and Planned Parenthood to to, to to offset it." But he was just like. It, it, it's not good politics to, it, to be anti something that really should be a neutral, right? Um, it's a technology. It's like, I'm anti-internet, you know? And so I think, and the Democrats all got that pre-Sam. And so I'm hoping this is, we're still just in that, you know, I guess that echo of, 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 of FTX that fades with time. And maybe after this, you know, this this cycle, this election cycle, kind of rationality comes
0: back. Yeah. And and Chris, I want to talk now about uh, CBDC, obviously, for anyone who doesn't know, and I'm assuming this is still the case. You uh, are co-founder of the Digital Dollar Foundation, which is uh, effectively creating a central bank digital currency, but with all of the uh, privacy features of cash. You know, last time we spoke, that was sort of the core of our conversation. I think there's been a lot of tin hat theories in the crypto community that a lot of this pushback is to make way for a central bank digital currency. I think there's been some unfortunate takes on FedNow being deemed a central bank digital currency. Uh, so uh, where does that play into all of this do you yeah, think?
2: So Scott, let me let me be clear. Uh, so we, we're not advocating actually deployment of a US digital dollar. We're not seeking to create one. The digital dollar foundation, the digital dollar project, our 501c3 educational organization, our goal is to be a think tank for what a digital dollar might look like should the U.S. decide to deploy one. We believe that um, uh, Well, we take note of the fact that over 114 countries in the world are working on central bank digital currency. Of that, 50 of them are in advanced stages. China's already placed their digital yuan into 240 million digital wallets, and that's an 18-year-old figure, 18-month-old figure. Uh, Europe has said they'll have a, start deploying a digital euro by 2025, and Britain has said they'll have a digital pound by the end of the, by the end of the decade. So we take note of the fact that central bank digital currency is coming around the world. Americans are going to be dealing with CBDC whether the U.S. deploys one or not. American multinationals are gonna be dealing with CBDC, whether the U.S. deploys one or not. The question is, what what are the pros? What are the cons? What are the opportunities? What are the challenges of developing U.S. central bank digital currency? And within that, there's a growing politicization of this issue with, it seems to be on the right, there's sort of a general assumption that private development of digital currency good. Central bank digital currency bad, and on the left it seems to be private development bad, central bank digital currency good, and both of those are relatively shallow and 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 and, and poorly considered um, conclusions. There's much more nuance to this. Now, gotten r- developed right, and, and both China and Europe see the opportunities, a central bank digital currency could serve as sort of an operating system like a Microsoft OS for a a, a a fully digitally networked economy that would break down the myriad silos we have in our financial system right now you, you don't want to put on a, a hedge on a commodity transaction you're in one legal sit, uh, framework cftc you're dealing with parties that are registered with that agency that only operate in that silo like chicago mercantile exchange You then want to do an equities trade you're in a different legal framework a different silo different counterparties dtcc and others you want to do a banking transaction more silos silo 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 the opportunity of a central bank digital currency and china's certainly pursuing this is a fully networked digital economy breaking down these barriers adding efficiency taking away cost putting your economy into hyperdrive especially at a time when we're going potentially going into recession the ability to do that and bring more people into the system. I mean, there's a lot of potential problem, uh, challenges. Now, potential opportunities. At the same time, there's a huge host of potential challenges, such as what about privacy? Um, and But that's an issue, quite frankly, that people on the left and the right make assumptions about, oh, well, if the government does it, it won't be private, but somehow if private actors do it, the private sector does it, and you'll have your privacy. I mean, that hasn't exactly worked out whether you, you 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 transact on Amazon or, or conduct business on Facebook, and and so private sector is just as likely to do surveillance and even censorship of economic activity. We need to get away from those wooden characterizations and recognize that private economic privacy is a civil right. It's a fundamental right, whether that's privacy from government surveillance or private sector surveillance, and the country that builds that level of privacy into their digital money, whether it's sovereign digital money or non-sovereign digital money, that currency will take over the world because the world will flock to a currency where their lawful transactions are rightfully kept private and not subject to either surveillance or censorship. And that can be done in a digital system where we move from an entity-based identification system to more of an activity-based system. And we can talk more about that. But the point I want
1: to make is- Hey, Chris, what can
2: I, can do- can I yes, ask you a question?
1: Uh, and I probably should know the answer to this given that I run a crypto company. Um, give me the nuanced difference between, let's just use USDC, which, you know, and let's just say USDC only ran on the Ethereum blockchain for a second. Uh, um, and we thought the Ethereum blockchain became the most distributed and diverse, uh, you know, fast blockchain. And so just- hold that thought, versus a CBDC in the U.S. and our confidence as users, even if the CBDC had built in similar privacy and similar backdoors than, say, the stablecoin, are they the same thing or are they different just based on the perception that the government has your data versus the data is is out there hidden on a on a public blockchain? Right.
2: That's a great point. So, so, I think some of that would depend on where you stand on the political divide. I think there are certain sectors of our population that may be more likely to trust the private sector, some that would be less likely to trust government. And that's why I believe the only way to assure people of privacy is not to say, trust me, I'm, I'm circle, or trust me, I'm the US government, and I'm not surveilling you, but to build that, use an open architecture where people can validate for themselves That they're not being surveilled and they're not being censored in their economic choices and that's why we at the the digital dollar project advocate if the u.s deploys a digital dollar it should be operationally transparent so you don't need the government to say trust us we're not surveilling you people should be able to establish for themselves that they're not being surveilled and the same applies to a non-sovereign digital currency should also use an open architecture So you don't have to say that you don't have to rely on them promising you you're not being surveilled. You can vouch for yourself. You can validate for yourself, or you can look to technology experts that can vouch that there's not a surveillance capability built in.
1: Interesting. Right. Yeah. that. uh, Go ahead.
2: And uh, quite frankly, either the
1: private sector
2: actor or the, the, the government actor that develops that type of digital currency, Will will gain global market share overnight because the great fear as we move to digital currency. By the way, and the same fear applies to private sector actors as government. It's the fear of surveillance and even worse censorship. You can imagine, right? Yeah. In return, in, just imagine this: in return for a stablecoin license, a stablecoin operator goes to the government and says, "We won't let people buy ammunition." You know, it's a left-wing government, so we won't let people fund—I um, don't know—right to life. And then suddenly, a right-wing government comes in, and the stablecoin operator says, "We won't let people uh, fund an abortion. We won't let them do other things." It, it would be a ping-pong ball between whichever government is in control. Stablecoin operators would, or governments would do it directly. I, the the, the, the that, risk in digital the the, future money, you know, I, is that the money itself becomes a tool of, of state control.
1: Yeah. I, and and I, I thought a lot about this when I was giving a, a, a speech uh, to the TED community on crypto. And I was like, guys, our data didn't matter nearly as much when it was kept on notebooks. And, and, but now that it's so accessible, um, our data is power. And so you think about what happened in India, where you know, they have this centralized uh, identity. Uh, all 1.2 billion people or 1.3 billion people have, you know, uh, uh, a centralized digital identity. Um, but Modi decided that he was going to just erase 11, 12 million Kashmiris uh, off the books. Like, they don't exist. Your whole, your whole, your whole, and you need the identity to get anything done there. <laughs> and so he was just, he literally erased 11 million people. Uh, you know, we saw what Trudeau did in Canada with, uh, and so when you have governments that go, I mean, I, I was teasing Governor Campos in Brazil once. I was like, listen, I just Googled gay and, and Bolsonaro and man, he doesn't like gay people. You know, there are 23 pages about how much he doesn't like gay people. That um, wasn't making that up. I was just reading the, the articles. And, and so if you're gay, you don't want the government to have all your data uh, right. because they just told you they don't like you. Uh, and so that, that's going to ping pong back all over the of place. Of course.
2: But, you know, as we've learned from as we've learned from the Twitter files, it's just as likely to be a private sector actor who will uh, restrict your activity or censor your activity as it is a government. And so the, the so, sort of simplest assumption that I hear often on the right is CBDC bad, the private sector, uh, non-sovereign government, uh, non-sovereign digital money fine. Well, it's not so fine. Yeah, that's a provocative. It's, I, haven't,
1: you know, I haven't thought of that, that clear, but I think you're dead right. And so the solution is decentralized and open. And so we all see it. That's got to be the only solution,
2: right? That's the only way. It can't be that, you know, we, what we're all searching for, right, is a trustless system. And it's got to be the same way in both sovereign and non-sovereign money, that we can vouch for ourselves that we're not being surveilled. Now, what, what law enforcement people say, oh, but wait, we, we still got to prevent money, uh, money laundering and, and tax evasion, and, and of course you do. And that's why the big breakthrough has got to be regulators need to move away from an identity-based, entity-based system, which is what we increasingly have in our financial system since 9-11, and we've got to move to an activity-based system. Governments have to be as proficient, law enforcement, has to be as proficient at big data analysis as is Amazon or eBay or Facebook, to analyze transaction flows. And when there's probable cause that those transaction flows indicate violation of law, then and only then should they be able to gain identity through our our centuries recognized process of of probable cause issuance of a subpoena and then obtaining identity. The problem we have in our financial system today it's, it's identity first. You can't enter into our financial system unless you can present sufficient credentialed identity. And then every transaction is monitored by identity. We need to move away from that to more of an activity base. And you know what? We use that activity-based system every day in highway law enforcement. We don't identify you at the toll booth before you get on the highway and say, where do you bank? Where do you live? What's your social security number? You get on the freeway and then they use pattern recognition. To, to identify law breaking, speeding, reckless driving, uh, cars with you know uh, headlights out, and then they stop the activity, stop the speeding, and then get identity. We can bring that same concept of identity last, activity recognition first, where, where law enforcement can be nodes on, on blockchains of digital money and look at pattern recognition. But that will take a sea change because regulators like identity-based, identity-based regulation, and and are uncomfortable with activity-based. But we can get
1: there. You know, I like to think you learn something new every day. That was what I learned today. So thank you for that. That's really it's a provocative idea, and it's actually, you know, sometimes you hear things, you're like, "Yep, he's right," Uh, because otherwise, we're always like, you know, listen, governments have a right to protect themselves against you know, kitty porn and nuclear financing and lots of bad things. I mean, yeah. you know, you want your government protecting you against that. And so how do you do that in a in a in a system where you don't want them knowing that, you know, you you bought X right. at the at the at the drugstore? And they can
2: be nodes on non-sovereign digital currency systems operated by the private sector where privacy is protected. Governments can monitor activity and then only get identity with the time-proven measures of probable cause and subpoenas. So we can build that kind of system. It can be done in the private sector, it can be done by the public sector, but we've got to protect privacy. And the country that gets this right is going to win big time. They're going to empower their economies, they're going to protect their citizens' privacy, and they're going to build the money system of the future.
1: Can, can I ask you another question on CBDCs? Yeah. Um, or maybe this is a statement that I want your comment on. So. You know, I grew up in the currency markets. Uh, banks, I think JP Morgan made like $14 billion on cross-border flows last year. Uh, they're unbelievably profitable business for our big money center banks. Uh, if I'm in Hungary uh, and I want to trade with China, I've got to do a euro-hungry trade, a euro-huff trade. Then I've got to do a euros-for-dollar trade and then a dollar-for-China trade. So there are three bit asks I'm paying to actually move from my Hungarian foreign right. to, uh, to renminbi. Um, and if you get one of those trades wrong, your whole trade is a it, it, money loser for you. Uh, now I've got a hunger, uh, Hungarian CBDC and China's got a, a Chinese CBDC and I'm trading direct. And so in some ways, if you're an emerging market, is the CBDC uh, forgetting the privacy and all the rest of the issues just from a practical perspective going to in time literally cut out uh this giant foreign exchange middle market business you know market making business and you'll just trade direct uh that make any sense yeah it
2: does it does so so potentially the answer is potentially yes one of the one of the first hurdles we've got to get over though right now is every one of these cbdc experiments is unique in their own right and there are no yet global standards for interoperability and so you could have uh, if we don't get them right and that's another reason why I think we need to have U.S. leadership at the table to develop even even if we don't deploy a U.S. digital dollar we want to have global standards where the U.S. is a standard setter as it was in the first wave of the internet. Um, So one of the first stumbling blocks is we need global standards of how they just interact with each other operationally and we don't yet have that the second, though, potential is that one currency emerges as sort of the, the conversion key to all the others. And I think that's a great opportunity for the dollar. The dollar has served that role. It serves that role today in an analog world where things are priced in dollars. So that's your reference point, even if the transacting parties are not native dollar users. We, we see that now, although although there are a lot of forces trying to move away from that, as we've seen in the last few weeks with announcements between Brazil and China and Russia and China and elsewhere. Um, but if we were to develop a digital dollar as a major conversion mechanism, that would be a tremendous opportunity for the United States.
0: Got it. I, I learned a ton there as well. <laughs> that, that, but, but I have to say, sorry, Mike, I didn't mean to interrupt. But... Doesn't the inevitable question then become what the timeline would be and if the United States is actually interested and if that could possibly happen under this regime? I mean, you look at things like the restrict act that are happening right now and a, uh, cbdc that protects the privacy of the american citizen seems like a very far-fetched idea
2: right i I agree with you now there are proponents of cbdc strong ones smart ones in washington include leo Brainerd in that category uh and and others there's a lot that get the opportunity whether they get the importance of privacy fully or not i don't know but there are a lot of advocates for the u.s and there are though uh, there are those very strong opponents of CBDC who simply say the danger of CBDC is too is too great to even contemplate. So let's just say no, in the words of Nancy Reagan, just say no. The problem with the just say no approach, it sounds a lot like the 1970s, when the fear of a nuclear catastrophe a la Three Mile Island was so great that folks said just say no to nuclear power. And we didn't build nuclear power in this country, and we stopped a lot of nuclear power development. And as a result, countries like France went ahead and built a great and safe nuclear power system. I think just saying no to CBDC misses the opportunity that we could design it right. With well, our with our development power, with our Silicon Valley, with our brain power, we could develop the world's foremost CBDC and protect privacy at the same time and dominate the globe for the next three generations in the way the dollar... Dominated the globe for the past three generations. Well,
1: and the other the other thought process is: listen, we have the largest deficit in history to fund. Right. Uh, traditionally, if you lived in Nigeria uh, or Venezuela or one of two hundred countries, and you w- were worried about your local currency, you kept wealth in dollar bills stuffed stuffed in pillowcases. Right? They're more hundreds. Yep.
3: There are more hundred dollar
1: yep. bills in circulation overseas than there are one dollar bills in circulation in America, um, and so as that moves digital, if you don't have an access point for them, they're going to put it into remb digital or euro exactly. digital, and we've got a huge deficit to fund. I used to argue with Minuchin. I was like, you should, like, we should care about terrorist financing and we should care about you know the things that that maybe impact our country, but we should care a lot less about. Chinese trying to break their own currency controls, um, yeah. you know, yeah. if, if they want to put their money in dollars and their government doesn't want to them, like, who are we to say no? Yeah. Uh, and
2: I'll give you another reason why I, I think ultimately the United States should be at work developing a, a, a U.S. CBDC, a digital dollar, because we should also do it alongside private innovation, because both sides will keep the other honest. If we develop a digital dollar that complies with the First Amendment, with de- de- compl- complies with the Bill of Rights, complies with the Fourth Amendment right to privacy, then so will private sector developers as well. And, and if private sectors develop it, that will only make the development of a digital dollar even stronger because of the innovation that will come out of the private sector. The best future Chris. for American people is one of choice where they can choose between different instruments, digital instruments in a digital economy.
0: I mean I, first of all I mean it's clear that we already effectively transact digitally anyways right um but couldn't you make the argument then that us that uh USDC an already existing private stablecoin could effectively uh with some sort of you know a part partnership or cooperation with the government Become sort of the de facto central bank digital currency, or that it already is.
2: Absolutely, you know, one path forward is for the U.S. government to basically lay down the standards for what digital currency should work like, and then allow the private sector to build it. You know, I, I would argue that one of those standards should be privacy and 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 and, and freedom from censorship. But, it all should be interoperability. It should be financial inclusion. It should be open architecture. Those are the standards that the government could set down and say, we won't deploy a central bank digital currency, we'll leave it to the private sector to do so. But right now, we we don't have that activity going on either, um, which is unfortunate, but I think that would also be a very smart course.
1: Right, and and it should have some way, you know, to, for the creators of it to to gain some of the interest, right? And now you have this whole security coin versus non-security coin nonsense, but... At one point, you're not going to let Circle if it becomes, if USDC becomes the, the premier s- stable coin and rates stay at 5%. And, you know, next thing you know, there's a, a trillion dollars in assets. It'll be the most valuable company in the world. Right? Like that, stupid things don't happen because people are like, okay, that makes no sense. Um, and so at one point, figuring out how the participants, not the people that own the stable because I can buy it in the secondary market I can deposit it but the people that create the stable coins right that initial that initial buy how they share in in the interest um, for tying their coin up or they tying their cash up and how in some ways the stable coin producer if it's the government uh, or a private sector really just becomes a utility with a regulated you know margin
2: yeah and and as money serves as a, as a as the sort of architecture upon which a private economy or a, you know, a, a, a both private sector, public se- sector economy is built upon, you know, you think about your digital currency as almost like an operating system upon which the economy is built, upon which transactions take place on which uh, companies are financed and which enterprise is conducted is built upon it. And, and I think if we can build the right type of both sovereign and non-sovereign digital currency of the future, Upon that, we build the digital economy, hopefully a much more networked, efficient, less silos, less monopolistic, more open, more financially inclusive economy of the future built upon both sovereign and non-sovereign digital money.
0: Chris, how much do you think this is actually important and on the radar radar of the federal government versus it being the crypto echo chamber and us being yeah. hyperbolic about? The, the so future. let
2: let me be fair to you know many in government today, some of whom are my former colleagues, some of which my predecessors, some of which are my successors. We're going through a period of profound change. The notion that uh, you know the the analog financial system is, is that we're that we're that we're coming out of is a system of informal networks. You talk about a eurozone, a dollar zone. Those are zones of relatively informal networks of influence, but also of regulation of, of frameworks. We're, we're going into a completely different architecture, one that's built upon the internet. You know, a network of computers using distributed ledger technology to create a connectivity. It's a, it's 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 almost as profound as when we went from a world where information was hand-scribed and then the printing press was invented and suddenly it democratized the system. This is a tremendous, profound change, and it shouldn't be surprising that many people are grappling with this. It, you know, it, it, this is almost the first revolution we've seen in a while that doesn't have an R or D naturally attached to it. I think both sides of that political divide are struggling with this. Some of the divide is generational. You know, I grew up in in the late '60s, early '70s, when there was something called the generation gap. You know, there was a generation, a real difference between the views of my my generation and my parents. It was a divide over civil rights. It was a divide over the war in Vietnam. I think you've got a similar generational divide here that's as deep, but it's all about you know financial independence, financial freedom away from intermediaries and and central controllers. But but we're it's so anyway. The point I'm making is. We have to be a little bit patient. This is going to take, it may take as long as 50 years to play out how this is going to work. But the one thing I can tell you is there's no going back. You know, we can try, some people can try to hold back the tide of this innovation, but to think that the internet somehow won't do to finance and banking and money, what it's done to social interaction, what it's done to information gathering, what it's done to transportation, leisure, arts and entertainment is just naive of course it is it's just going to take i think longer to play out because of this you know because of the hierarchies that exist in our analog financial system and the complexities of it but it will play out the, the, the digital change in finance is going to happen uh, and it's going to create a lot of disruption in its wake but it's going to happen
0: I, I wanted to be conscientious of both of your time. You're welcome to stay, Thank stick Chris, around, I'm speak for as long as you I'm, want. I am going to have to jump. Also welcome to. It's been yeah. so much
2: fun, Scott. Yeah. I lost track of the time, but I have to jump for a call. Yeah, and Chris,
0: we're going to do another uh, podcast soon, the two of us. Great. Okay. And Mike,
2: great talking to you. Let's, you as well, Chris. We'll overdue for lunch. Let's get together soon. Perfect. All right. Take care, guys.
0: And Mike, I don't know if you want to stick around because I do have more questions for you, but you're welcome to, to obviously uh, I, leave I'll as give well. you a, a, five more minutes. Far away. Yeah, well, this is what I want to know. How much of what's happening right now, uh, I guess even for you, uh, operating in this industry is a fiduciary responsibility to investors, all those things. How much of this concerns you long term or how much do you think this is just a road bump? I mean, as an investor in the United States specifically, because I think that uh, offshore, most of this will just move and continue to uh, exist and, and well listen,
1: I think in the long run the US will have to get it right. You you know, for the businesses that are operating in the United States, you know, you've got to have some path to to oxygen, uh, or I mean you, you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna suffocate. And so luckily we're pretty diversified and we have a, a big balance sheet and so when crypto goes up we make a whole lot of money and we can kind of self fund. But if if you're in a business that's much more reliant on, you know, having uh domestic participation and you're not getting any rules, it's going to, uh, hurt. And so, uh, I, I, I'm really positive. I know where the end game is. And I just am working my ass off to navigate the galaxy ships to make sure we, we actually win, uh, and make it to the end game. You know, I think Sam set us back two years, period. Um, and I think it's as simple as that. I think Congress was moving towards bills. They weren't going to be perfect, but they were going to get us a a a framework to then operate off of. And you know the 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 sting of FTX. I mean, it wasn't just in the U.S. You know, Sam was the speaker at the uh, one of my buddies runs one of the biggest trade groups where every central bank is there, every big. You know, Money Center Bank is there, and Coinbase and FTX are the only two crypto people out of three hundred members of uh, of the group. And he was the keynote two weeks before, you know, uh, you know the, the blow up. And so you had, you know, Madame Lagarde there, and and uh, Chairman Powell, and all the, and so everyone felt stupid. And I think this is we're still in that fallout zone. And and you know, I do think the crypto haters are are taking advantage of that. Um, And so there's not a lot we can do other than, you know, fight in court, advocate with and educate politicians uh, and build, you know, build good businesses. Uh, Time will time will heal. And I'm just hoping that time is, you know, shorter, not longer.
0: Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Uh, Appreciate your time. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, sit down and do this again in in the very near future. man. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right, guys. And so now, obviously, uh, we have uh, some other speakers joining. Dave Weisberger, Simon Dixon, uh, Sven. Sven, man, how are you uh, today? I, I know you probably got to listen into to some of the end of that. You were one of the uh, most popular uh, people to become a Bitcoiner, I think, last year. <laughs> Has anything changed, in your opinion, as you've seen all this nonsense sort of uh, continue on through the last few months?
4: Hey, Scott, good to speak to you. Usually, you and I are both drowning in bots. That's one of our little side <laughs> issues that we're trying to survive on.
0: No, I mean, look. The bots actually, have gotten worse. They've gotten worse, yes. haven't they? They've gotten worse. Yeah. Okay. Just they, checking. They Go they ahead. They have gotten worse. I don't
4: know. We're, we're, it's, it's just part of life on Twitter these days, I guess. Listen, on Bitcoin specifically, um, last year at the beginning of the year you know i had multiple conversations with mike Saylor back then uh in 21 i was skeptical then we started having this insanity with the money printing bitcoin obviously went to near seventy thousand. i was still very skeptical and then we obviously we started entering into the bear market and by the way i'm for for those listening i'm 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 an equity strategist deal with indices mostly uh Always from a trading perspective and for years i've been very critical of the entire monetary game that is imposed on us because none of us have any in- in- input into this this is like the least democratic institution on the planet not only the federal reserve the ecb is the same thing and i was railing about the policy error that were they were making by continuing to print into the supply chain issues, the excess of the fiscal policy that took hold, it all, it all screened inflation. They kept obviously railing on about transitory and it, it's come to bite everybody in the butt. And now they've been on a, a train to correct that error. And unfortunately, you know, this, this set up for a major bear market in everything and the monetary excess has led to valuation excess in everything and last year we saw the fallout from that. So when Bitcoin started correcting, I think at the time it was about about 50%, um, it was coming out of a philosophical point of view and discussing with with Mike Saylor to recognize A, that wouldn't it be nice if we had some independence uh, from, from the citizenry in terms of the monetary aspect of, of life and Bitcoin as a, technical solution uh, certainly was appealing in this regard. However, certainly cognizant of the correlation that we saw with everything. I mean, at at some point Bitcoin and the S&P were almost 90% correlated. It was basically just a liquidity flow game. And so my view last year was that as this bear market would unfold in equities, uh, Bitcoin would see weakness Uh, with it uh, along the correlation and that ultimately however as in the nasdaq crash of 2000 when we saw some of the biggest high flyers completely collapse at the time uh, some of the winners at the time the long-term winners would emerge from the rubble victoriously we saw that with amazon apple everybody gets completely hammered down 90 percent drawdowns at the time And so my view was not from a trading perspective, rather from an investment perspective to say, okay, expect a bear market in 2022 and would use the drawdowns that we see uh, as entry opportunities. That was was my view with a 10-year investment horizon. And that's that's exactly what I did. So we talked again in the summer and obviously Bitcoin got down to 17,000. And, and and it's in the same time, really important point I want to highlight here. And that is one thing I even acknowledged back when I was a skeptic uh, in, in 2021, that Bitcoin was trading technically very clean. It's it's always impressed me from that perspective, even in the blow off phases that you, you can use technicals very well. To ascertain your, your points of support and resistance and technical patterns completely apply to that uh, and so for me as a technician as a market technician uh, 2022 was great because i was able to say okay here's the point where i expect more downside here's a point where i expect support and that helped me kind of then shift more into bitcoin because uh, my initial entry was was too early i think it was about 32 33. Uh, But then, of course, we got the larger drawdown. And my my point was to patiently scale in on weakness. And here we are at 30,000. So it's been a a good run from that perspective. However, you know, the, the threats are not over. One of my contentions back then was also that we needed to see some real clarity on regulation. And we still don't have that to the extent that I would like to see. And I think that's... That's continuing to pose a risk. And, you know, was it last week? I saw somewhere the headline, you know, it's now a matter of national security. You know, once they start
0: throwing terms, that back, was the Treasury, that was, yeah, the, that Treasury. was the Department yeah. of Treasury put out a report. Uh, you should probably listen when they start saying things like that. Uh, it yeah, it seems like it's pretty clear what they're trying to do.
4: Absolutely. Cause once that term is used, anything goes right. Uh, so the, I'm I'm not of the view here yet that everything is in the clear and by everything i mean equity markets we've been and people follow me on my feet know this i've been probably to the consternation of many been very bullish on equities since since the october lows and every dip was a buy but i'm starting to slowly shift my view on this because there's a lot of macro issues looming ahead and uh, and technical as well in fact on bitcoin i i can just point out that this this rally in, now let me put a post on my chart on my Twitter feed real quick. I think you guys may want to be interested in seeing that. Um, just a quick Bitcoin
0: chart. Bear with me
4: so you guys can see this. This is really interesting, actually, the the way the chart has been evolving. Um, yeah, if
0: you tweet something, I can uh, pin it up top. Yeah, I just tweeted it out a second ago. All right, give me one second. You yeah. keep talking, and I'll, I'll go ahead and pin it in a moment. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So when you have it, let me talk to that.
0: Sorry, it's going to take a second. I'm working on it. No worries. No worries. Well, I'll start talking. About I'm, st- I'm still a boomer. I'm still a boomer. So, uh, you know, it's a little slow for me to, uh, to to get these. Every time I try to do it, I hit a wrong button. Or All right, we got Bitcoin chart. Okay, it's pinned up top. You're good.
4: Okay, good. Well, it looks like a bunch of lines, but I'll try to make it simple. I mean, the, the key trend lines that we've seen over the years, they've, they've been quite uh, powerful. And last year, we saw that if you look at the middle blue line, that was kind of a key uptrend line I was following. And that was the breakdown ultimately that we saw, right? We had uh, initially high the, the highs in the beginning of 22 came on a negative divergence on the, on the weekly RSI. That was a sign of trouble. Uh, and then it just continued to break down in the lower uptrend line, very key. Uh, that was initial support in the summer. It bounced over there and then it failed. And that was, that was a sign that things would get a little bit worse. And then something really interesting happened in this context. And that is Bitcoin formed a bullish falling wedge. And that new low that we saw, along with equity markets and everything, if you look on top, the RSI turned into a positive divergence. We saw the same thing on the S and P. That was kind of one of my warning signs in general, for bears to pack it up in October, because the all these new lows came on positive divergences. They were just massive uh, oversold signals. It was clear that something was coming and since then what we've seen not only the breakout out of that bearish or bullish falling wedge excuse me but also a break above that pink descending line that you see that that was the downtrend it broke above it it backtested it here in the spring and now moved higher from there in process it's for the first time since this bear market started it has recaptured the weekly 200 ma and the weekly 50 ma that's big that's solid that's that's kind Huge. of that's what you want to see. That's what you want to see. So that's that's positive, and as long as that holds, it's it's going to continue to be positive. Having said that, that red line, that uptrend line, going back to two thousand fifteen, that was such a, that was tagged in in during the COVID crash. It was tagged on initial low in in spring last year. Uh, that is now resistance, and as you can see, if you look at the rather. You know, tight range action that we've seen over the past few weeks, it keeps tagging that line. It just tells you it's resistance. That's just a piece of evidence, shows you how respectful Bitcoin is of of technicals, right? And so it it is resistance. And of course, this price zone now is also approaching the 21 spring lows, right? So you got price resistance there as well. And we're still below the weekly 150 MA. So I I would generally say we're at a key point of resistance. As you can see, the weekly RSI is getting overbought as well. And my general view on this here is that the You do not have a confirmed new bull market in Bitcoin until it's solidly above the weekly 150 MA and stays above it, meaning that on any back test, it would defend it. So you just got to be cognizant of that. Okay. Yeah, I
0: agree. We haven't really seen the back test of any of the key levels. I mean, if we're talking technicals, for me 25,000 to was really the meaningful one because that's when the market made the first higher high uh from the drop down from from 69,000. Um and so I I agree I think right now though things are looking quite quite good. <laughs>
4: No, they are looking much better. And and we see that in equity markets as well. I mean, I've, I've been, you know, the, these falling wedges, we saw it on the S&P, we saw it on NASDAQ, we saw it on the German DAX before anywhere else. That actually broke out before ever, everything else broke out. So that's all been really positive. Um, the question I have, and I'll just throw that out to everybody. Part of, part of the bullishness we see now in everything, part of it was... Uh, I would argue clearly the chart patterns that we've seen, but it's also driven by negative sentiment. We had a lot of short positioning. Then we have the uh, just enormous liquidity that's been thrown at these markets as a result of the banking crisis that we just recently saw um, to the tune of over $400 billion. Uh, spe- specifically bank reserve balances just shot up sky high. And if you overlay a chart between bank reserves and the S&P, it's it's fascinating. <laughs> it's It's been going tick for tack uh, last year. Um, so when you, for example, saw the Baker rally in from the June lows to the August highs, it was at the time when the bank reserve does the liquidity drain from the Fed bottomed in June and then it topped in August and that it, it just the S&P and, and the bank reserves seem to be going hand in hand. We saw that again in December when we had that drawdown in markets in December and early January. And guess what happened? Bank reserves bottom went up and everything flew higher with that. And we just had this incredible splurge uh, coming through the system. And as you we, as we saw, <laughs> You know, as soon as the SVB news hit and Janet Yellen got concerned and they started flooding the system, boom, everything bottomed. It's It's markets yeah. are a game of liquidity. So we have to be cognizant of this. And to the extent that they start draining this again, that may become a drain on equity markets as well. So be, be aware of that. And then the final factor that's really been helpful and conducive for the rally here is is something banal called seasonality. Um, April is usually a very bullish month. Now you can counter to that and say, well, April wasn't very bullish last year, which is absolutely true. Which is where I go back to what I just said about bank reserves, because guess what they did in April last year? They drained the bank reserves and everything fell with it. So that's just a dynamic we we all need to be aware of. Uh, But then when you come out of April, things get a little shakier uh, historically, at least for for a while. And tying this to bear markets in the past, I want to just highlight this. Bear Stearns, 2008. And I don't want to make 2008 or 2000 comparisons, but I just want to highlight the, the historical reference here. It was so ironic that SVB happened on literally the same weekend as Bear Stearns in 2008. Uh, the same weekend, you can't make this up and guess what happened. Uh, they, they obviously they bought out the bank, intervened and the S and P at a 14 and percent rally from that weekend low, which was that March, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th timeframe. And it rallied right into the beginning of may and then everything rolled over. Okay. Mm-hmm. Using that example, I also need to precisely point out that there was an important difference during that time frame, And that is that rally in the S&P that went all the way to May. It stopped right at the 200-day moving average on the daily. I mean, to the tick, it just rolled over from there and that was it, and we went off to make new lows. This time is different in this regard because we're above the 200 MA. We're you know, successfully defended S&Ps above the 200 MA. So there's there's a technical notable difference here. The other one I want to highlight is 2001. This was after the tech bubble burst, which is kind of interesting because the the timeline is somewhat similar, right? We had a, a blow-off top at the beginning of 2000, and then we had a bear market in, in 2000 that extended into, uh, obviously, didn't bottom until 2002, 2003. It was ugly. It took on several years. But intermittently, during this time frame, you had absolutely mind-blowing rallies and these occurred in various periods and one of those periods was april 2001 when markets just flew higher the dow almost went to new all-time highs uh, during that time frame and and it also peaked then in early may and then rolled over hard okay so this is what markets do to us especially in bear markets they they can give us the sense that the worst is over things are getting better hopium right and and that's when chases begin again but that's where understanding the macro is going to become so important because you know if we do go into a recession which i can't say that we will but there's many signs that point to it then the entire equity construct is going to find itself under a lot more stress than we've seen so far uh and that's the unknown obviously for all of us and then to the extent that you again have corollary factors i.e with bitcoin you you may still see significant downside at some point so that's why i'm looking at the yeah. bitcoin chart here and i see it approaching key resistance into a seasonal bullish period of the year again Having the correlation with the S and P and the liquidity that was injected, so I'm I'm not here saying you know okay great I I added nicely in, in 22 and I see nice results now, I'm not here declaring victory laps at all. In fact, you know not to scare anyone, but you know I've got this blue line down there on the chart that points into the abyss at some point, uh, which is, doesn't mean it gets there. But I had always I. Pointed that out last summer as well that that I could see as a as a risk zone uh, ultimately if if the global equity construct or rather the economy goes into a severe recession which I don't know that it that it will but that's would probably be kind of a back up the truck line for me
0: yeah Sven uh, interesting and, I, and we're gonna kind of uh, bring in some some other speakers here as well what I find interesting is that. Bitcoin has become, almost for like nine or 10 months now, and historically, obviously, we talked about this earlier, has become a bit decorrelated and has continued to rise in the face of all of this bad news. So at least I would say there is an inkling of hope that it can remain uh, uncorrelated and not trade like a risk on asset, even if things go bad. But I think we all have to be aware of the uh, worst case scenario there. Brad, I see, see you've got your hand up. Uh, I saw you had pinned a tweet, but I, uh, you can do it again. I had gotten rid of it because he was talking about that chart.
5: Oh Yeah, no, it's just uh, related to that conversation. I I was thinking about this the other day. I was having a conversation with Bitcoin Tina, who, if you don't know who he is, he's like a boomer that's been in the equities markets, been trading a long time. He's got a really good understanding of the credit system and the macro picture and all that stuff. And he's been very bullish on Bitcoin for for a while, but he was too heavy in Bitcoin. He was like 100% of his net worth was into Bitcoin. And the emotional volatility you get from being all in Bitcoin kind of took its toll on him like it did on many of us in the past who tried to do all in Bitcoin <laughs> without having any uh, without having any cash to, to be able to buy dips. And so he kind of is worried now about this situation where if we enter into a recession and the liquidity is drawn out from the system, then it will drive all markets, all risk assets down because our our system is based on stimulus and credit creation. And if you get into a deflationary spiral because of credit crunches and, you know, interest rates rising and banks not doing lending because the rates are too high or whatever the reason is why the lending is not happening or QE, they don't do QE, they keep doing QT. Then people are worried that assets are going to crater. And I I actually feel pretty confident after the conversation with him and all these macro guys that you hear on spaces all the time worrying about Bitcoin going to drop, you know, how it's going to go to $1,000 or zero or whatever if we hit a recession or even worse, a Great Depression 2.0 or something like that. I, I don't think that's accurate because if you look at the size of Bitcoin, there's just not the- enough
0: supply to even drop another 60 70 percent from here but go ahead yeah even like even
5: like 10k right like i i really think we found a bottom in around the the like 65 range to to 20 range and i was like like Sven, i was i was when you know we were at like 60k um i clearly had like identified that this was a bubble especially it's mostly because of all the crypto stuff and because of the meme stocks and everything so i was like you know like Celsius has a lot of Bitcoin. FTX has a lot of Bitcoin. Terra Luna, you know, is using Bitcoin as a confidence game. So Bitcoin has a lot of risk here for the crypto bubble blowing up. And so I, I was like pretty much confidently saying like <laughs> we're going to 20K. And it wasn't very popular at the time to say that. But I was able to make some maneuvers and kind of like raise some cash for myself to be able to buy the bottom. And then when we were dropped below 20, I just started slowly deploying my, my barbell fund, the cash that I had raised near the top, to buy back and you know kept buying all the way down to like 16, 17, whatever it was. And it was kind of stressful to be buying at like 17, 18, but everybody was saying we're going to 10K and Tether's going to blow up and, and Coinbase is going to sell all the Bitcoin they have and all this stuff. I'm like, we had massive capitulation. like We had major capitulation. And then when you combine that with looking at the HODLer base of Bitcoin, most of the four sellers are out already. And the people that have Bitcoin now are the ones that weathered another crazy 80% drawdown in their Bitcoin price. And they're buying more. You look at the on-chain addresses, people that are holding 0.1 Bitcoin or more. It just continually has increased through the bear market. So... In a debt deflationary situation, there—you know—I was looking at the Fed stats the other day. The the amount of securities held by households and the public went from, uh, I think it was, twenty nine trillion to forty nine trillion in two years, just by U.S. households and nonprofits. And then it dropped to like thirty four trillion or something. So it's still like the stock market and the real estate market too is still overvalued. And so deposits went from 14 trillion to 18 trillion in the, in the last two years. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of wealth in the system, phantom wealth that you, you look at the trend of people discovering what Bitcoin is and how, how strong their conviction is and how many people continue to hold Bitcoin, the Bitcoin coming off the exchanges. It's only a $500 billion asset. So I I really do think that it's possible that Bitcoin can have you know, $2 trillion market cap, $3 trillion market cap in a severe recession because it's so small. And as money comes out of all these other things, as people start to realize what it is they're holding when they have stocks or when they have real estate and just transition some of that into Bitcoin, as long as people are still understanding Bitcoin is the only thing you can have that doesn't have counterparty risk, it's the only thing that's censorship resistant it's limited in supply the future is going digital i really do think that in a debt deflationary uh collapse or whatever bitcoin can still have a really good a really good uh, a really good year or two
0: guys i also just want to say the floor is open to all the speakers who we have up here you don't need to wait for me or be moderated anyone who has a comment on what brad just said please just go ahead and jump in and you guys can feel free to address each other uh, directly
6: yeah scott so uh, this is here. so I i everything brad said made sense to me the the one point that i think is often it's assumed by those of us in the community but ignored by people outside of the community is the importance of trust and and trust has cuts in a bunch of ways here. I mean, you know, we know I love Mark Yusko's you know commentary that Bitcoin is a technology of trust as a pro, you know, technology of truth rather than than the idea of needs for trust and intermediaries. But it is literally impossible to pick up a, any version of a newspaper, digital or otherwise, or watch any TV station at this point without seeing reports of public perception. And public trust in institutions and in the financial system writ large dropping for lots of reasons and what we saw a couple weeks ago with uh silicon valley bank and then you know whatever the hell happened with uh signature bank uh is the the federal reserve realizing that this is indeed the the waterloo moment and i think powell was smart I think he recognized that that bank deposits getting withdrawn writ large from people who are getting paid virtually nothing to keep their money there uh, with any, it would take very little prompting to get people to pull all their money. And so he basically said, okay, uh, if, if you need to, you know, cover your losses, you can do so via, you know, the, the BTFT. Uh, the fact of the matter is trust in financial institutions. Bitcoin is a hedge directly against that. For those who understand it, we get that, and you can see it in the Bitcoin network growth. I mean, the Bitcoin—I I, I know I harp on this. I know I sound like a broken record. I'm sorry, but the fact is, is my favorite chart is the one that, that I, I put up yesterday. It's from Blockchain.com. Anyone can look at it. The Bitcoin hash rate versus the price, and essentially what you see is a very interesting story. It shows a almost monotonically increasing network growth over years with a blip when china banned bitcoin that it recovered from and regained it and it it looks almost identical to the chart of the s p from the 20 you know the from the the 2009 low uh to you know whatever the pre-pandemic you know a monotonic up up into the right while price didn't do that price actually got way ahead of itself and then cratered post Luna last year, and then post, you know, repetitive for selling waves of for selling from, you know, just taking all the leverage out of the system. The interesting thing about bull and bear markets is, and this has not happened in equities, let's be very clear, but it has happened in Bitcoin. And it's one of the reasons for a D link is when you see bear market bottoms, It generally is a complete deleveraging. I don't think there's a human being on the planet who thinks that deleveraging has happened in the equity markets. But every statistic I've seen in terms of open interests, in terms of funding rates, in terms of whatever, however you want to look at it, you know, hodling percentages, everything looks like Bitcoin got delevered. In fact, it was probably anti-levered because you had billions of dollars of Bitcoin held by people who you know are waiting to see if their money is going to get anything back from the various bankruptcies that happen and most most particularly ftx most likely it not to be returned in bitcoin but to return in dollars so that deleveraging event is very relevant and i think as we move move towards the upside as people start saying okay we have an environment where the Fed is sort of trapped, is going to probably not be able to continue tightening forever, and trust continues to fade in those institutions, and network growth grows. That's a very bullish setup. Going into the having you know, in a little over a year, uh, that's why people are excited. But, you know, honestly, if you even just look at trading ranges, this bull run is just into the middle of the post-LUNA four or five-week trading range we had a year ago. Right It dropped you know the first that that first big drop happened, and it stayed between twenty eight and thirty two and then post Celsius, et cetera, et cetera, it dropped and then post FTX it dropped again. We've recovered the two of those three, but what happens after that trading range is breached? Well, I mean, you could look at the chart and you could see where the resistance really is up towards all time highs if in fact the macro economy is accommodative and i and I don't know that that it will be because everything Sven said is concerns of mine as well in terms of are we going to enter a recession feels fairly baked in the cake as we talked about on Monday. Anyway, I'll stop there. But I think the whole trust narrative is extremely important and the macro side is important, but it's also important to look at the fundamentals of the Bitcoin network and the adoption going on globally.
3: Simon? Hey, Scott, what are you eating? (laughs) I caught you in the middle of it. Caught me right in
0: the middle of a bite, Dave. Yeah, perfect.
3: (laughs) You're standing up and eating.
0: Sorry, dude. <laughs> exactly what I'm doing. Literally standing up and eating. Yep.
3: Yeah.
5: Yeah. Sounds like a peanut butter sandwich.
3: It's turkey. Yeah. yeah so I think um, the, the the trying to combine a bunch of those um, thoughts together. Um, so you, in every cycle I've been through, and I, I see Bitcoin as a 14-year bull market. And um, in every cycle, we see a halving. A regulatory crackdown, um, all new all time new all time highs, and um, some high, higher lows uh, on what people call a bear market. Um, and you, if you look at these longer charts, you you just see that every time. But every cycle is dominated by, I'd say, one key feature of why Bitcoin should die. Um, and in the first cycle. It was, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto mining a bunch of Bitcoin, accumulating a million Bitcoins and proving, you know, trying to trying to prove that everyone can mine from a computer and then mine from GPUs. And then specialist equipment came out um, and then we had ASICs. And and the whole thought experiment was, can Bitcoin be decentralized and work without a government and be independent of banks? Um, Check. It won that. And it got through that, and it should never have survived that. Uh, then the second cycle was all about well, governments can shut it down. Can it be 51% attacked? Can quantum computers come along and take it down? Um, will all governments ban it? Um, and so, you know, 70% of all uh, tradable Bitcoin ended up on Mt. Gox. Mt. Gox blew up. Everyone lost 90% of their Bitcoin. Um, we had FinCEN say that you need to register as a money transmitter if you're providing an exchange. Uh, we had the Japanese authorities um, you know, crack down on all of the exchanges. We had Eric Voorhees try and raise money for Satoshi Dice in Bitcoin and the SEC saying that's an unregistered security. You need to unwind what was actually a really profitable investment for investors. Um, and so the second su- cycle survived. When governments could have shut it down, they should have shut it down then. Uh, For whatever reason, they didn't. Um, And uh, Bitcoin survived like the second. The third cycle was, is there really 21 million Bitcoins? Maybe we can fork this thing. Maybe we can create 42 million Bitcoin. Maybe Bitcoin is not Bitcoin. Uh, Maybe we need to create a new blockchain. Uh, Maybe some of these alternative things are actually going to flip and we're going to have a flipping. And uh, maybe everyone needs their own token. Maybe we need a currency for everyone and everything and everyone. Um, and maybe Bitcoin's not even Bitcoin, it's a blockchain. Um, and so banks tried to create the technology and eliminate Bitcoin. And all the technology just didn't get anywhere and Bitcoin just survived. Um, so we then checked the third cycle. Yeah, um, it, it can survive money printing. We can have every single person in the world creating an illegal security, trying to cro- trying to copy Bitcoin, and no one can create Bitcoin. And there's still only 21 million of them. Most of them get mined. So we're at about 18 and a half million. And we've only got a, a few of them left. And institutional mining and security and hash rate that goes up. And then everyone says... Our uh, Bitcoin's going to die this time because it's only been alive in the post-financial crisis. And in the post-financial crisis, we started quantitative easing. Um, and now we're heading into a first recession and the print is going to um, co- come off. Um, and there's going to be quantitative tightening. The Fed's actually going to uh, reduce their balance sheet uh, and they're going to hike interest rates. And so that causes the next crash. Um And it turns out that the Fed can't do quantitative tightening because it destroys the whole economy and it destroys the banking system. And everybody learns that actually Bitcoin is simply a way of owning your own money, spending your own money and having a monetary policy that's 100 percent forecastable into the future. And so this cycle is all about can we get to the 2024 halving and survive quantitative tightening? I think we're going to check that box, too.
0: Yeah, Simon, it's really but, interesting because I think that this time you didn't hear, to your point, in the first, in the previous cycles, it was Bitcoin will die, Bitcoin will die, Bitcoin will go to zero. I didn't hear that in this cycle,
3: right? Uh, yeah, I, I think everyone, I, I, I heard a big narrative. I mean, a lot more and more people in each cycle. There's more and more people that come across to realizing I need to allocate some of my portfolio to Bitcoin, and so this one was heavily institutionalized. It was heavily. You know, the corporate narratives from um, Michael Saylor joining and public companies and various other things, um, BlackRock entering the equation, um, all of the institutions saying, right, let's get rid of all the fraudsters that don't comply with regulations and we'll take over. Um, we'll have an operation choke Point, And then eventually some of the big boys in America will, will come and do this thing properly. Uh, you know, that's the that's the current Narrative and and tightening and various other things. So it's about, I guess, the the large traditional takeover in America would be the existing narrative. But there's a ginormous world that still needs um, that still needs Bitcoin. So after the next halving, you'll enter the next narrative, which has started already now. Which is, what if um, governments need to backstop their entire banking system? and large institutions gobble up smaller banks, and uh, banks become systemically too big to fail, and there's a systemic risk event, and so we need to bail out the system with a central bank digital currency, and a central bank digital currency will then make it illegal to trade Bitcoin into CBDC, um, and global governments all around the world will coordinate and eliminate Bitcoin. That will be the next narrative in the next cycle. And then the next cycle after that will be, well... Artificial intelligence is disrupting central banks and central bank digital currencies. Um, And uh, artificial intelligence can invent a quantum computer that can break the SHA-256 algorithm um, and cryptography. And therefore, that will take down Bitcoin and the whole world ends and we all need to buy gold uh, will be the, the next narrative after that. And it turns out that actually decentralized proof of work with a high level of security was actually the solution to the bank issue, people owning their own money, regulatory issue, the fiat issue, creating more honest central bank digital currencies by having competition where people can exit when your CBDC gets too suppressive. Um, the, it was also the solution to artificial intelligence becoming more intelligent than central bankers because you actually needed proof-of-work blockchain in order to uh, combat... So each cycle you get a a new narrative and it just turns out that the whole thing that underpinned was what was proven in the first cycle, which was, can you create proof of work that means that no government, no authority, no coder, no group of companies trying to take over the blockchain, no influential VC investor, none of them could change the facts That we don't need to trust bitcoin and we do need to trust authorities companies exchanges and every single cycle just gives us a new lesson and new people discover i need to allocate more of my money to bitcoin and i I would even argue
0: yeah i would even argue that less than less than it's about people understanding that they need to allocate to bitcoin what we're seeing right now is that wholesale crisis of confidence that you hinted to in the legacy system. So it's just, I I think Bitcoin may get the benefit of a major pushback against all of these legacy systems that people don't trust anymore, right? People are failing to trust the bank. Certainly they're trusting the government less. I mean, listen, we can keep talking about Bitcoin. It might be worth talking about the restrict act, Uh, Because obviously that is a massive violation, potentially, of our privacy and overreach by the government. And I think something like that also pushes more people towards Bitcoin. Mark, I know we, Mark Massa, if you're if you're there, I know we even spoke uh, yesterday on on a different show. But uh, and I know that you're sort of of that same opinion. I mean, what do you make right now of? the massive sort of uptick in, I mean, enforcement against crypto, but general push towards uh, violating privacy and such that we're seeing from the government.
7: Yeah, thanks, uh, Scott. I think uh, that was great what Simon said. What a great recap of all the different attack vectors going off of uh, historical having cycles. And so, yeah, that, that, that just continues. And, you know, kind of what I was hearing with Brad and, and Dave and, and Simon as well, and I just kind of think back to you know, this old kind of investing adage that I've always kind of lived off of is volatility is the difference between perception and reality. And so we kind of get these overhype cycles where everybody thinks it's the hot thing it's going to take over the whole world and it gets way overbought and then uh, reality kind of comes crashing back down it gets oversold. And so this perception and reality, then it's going to die. Then it's at 16,000, it's going to drop to 12,000. And so re- the perception sh- swings to these extremes, but reality keeps moving it forward. Uh, But the other thing I'd say is a couple things uh, just to kind of recap on a few speakers and answer what you said, Scott, a couple things just to recap is I love what Dave said about trust. I I think you can't really uh, overstate that enough. That was a really a big point I made at the Bitcoin conference last year because it was right after kind of the whole, uh, you know, Russia, Ukraine thing broke out. Russia had their bank account seized, et cetera. And once you destroy trust, any of us know that if we've had (laughs) bad experiences with the you know, a spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend or, or business partner, you know, once trust is broken, it doesn't just come back. Um, and typically it never comes back all the way. And so really what we're seeing is, is a disillusion of trust uh, in the financial system. And not just from, um, you know, the usual sus- suspects like not trusting China, etc. But, you know, now the United States, which was supposed to be kind of the leader of the world with uh, rule of law, uh, due process, uh, things like that, and so that's why you know a lot of capital comes to America because of those those strong things. But now the trust is lost there, and for all the talk of you know going to Chinese yuan, et cetera, there's no trust there either. And so as the world continues to decentralize, that trust continues to get dissolved, and uh, it's almost like you need a trustless system uh, to move forward. And so I think that that's apparent. The other thing I just want to say is you know we haven't seen it in this macro environment, but I think that's a very U.S. centric viewpoint uh, typically most of us humans don't really move until pain is high enough. I believe in chiropractic. I've gone to chiropractic most of my life. Uh, I think we should all do it, but I still don't typically go until my back really hurts. Right. Uh, and so the pain has to be high enough. And so, you know, when you live in Manhattan and you drink a $20 martini at the bar, you don't really care why your money doesn't work. But if you live in, uh, you know, if you're one of three billion people living under really harsh authoritarian regimes with you know double, triple digit inflation, Lebanon, Turkey, Argentina, Peru, et cetera, you don't need to be told why you need something. So in the U.S., everyone's like, how do we orange pill people like you don't need to orange pill those people. They're looking for an alternative. And so it's easily found there. And unfortunately, that's the direction the whole world is going into more authoritarianism, uh, from everywhere. And the reason why the authoritarianism is on the rise is, I mean, that's just the natural order of, st- of the state, but, you know, as things continue to deteriorate, as, as the financial system continues to break down, we're at the end of this, you know, hundred year sovereign debt bubble that's bursting right now. Uh, they have to try to impose capital controls. It's always the last piece uh, that a nation state would try to use to try to maintain order. Don't let the capital flee. So they have to seal off the exits and keep that in. And so back to the question that you asked, Scott, the restrict act. You know, a lot of people, uh, well, the media makes it out to be this TikTok ban, which is what it was intended for. But it's also it, it's way more scary than that. And ultimately, you know, a lot of people say it's about cryptocurrency, which which it is. Uh, but it's but it's even bigger than that. And so really, what it is is that. They want to, they being the government, uh, wants to have one unelected leader having unilateral control with zero due process or accountability, not even subject to FOIA requests or anything, uh, to have full control to say what electronic communication methods are allowed to be used or not. And when we talk about communication, obviously that falls into cryptocurrency. So, you know, similar to what we've seen with Tornado Cash, but they could say, any of these communication protocols aren't acceptable they're not they're, not, they're no longer legally able to be used um, and then if you try to go around them with a VPN or something like that you know you'd be uh, found without even due process they could just say you're guilty you lose your property 20 years in prison a million dollar fine et etc but as much as it is an attack on crypto I think it's even worse than that and that is it's an attack on really free speech and so exactly yeah the the government you know they have to control the narrative but they can no longer control the narrative I mean all over the news right now is this the 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 Department of uh, Defense uh, leaked the, all this top secret information. It's all out there. They're now going on to uh, these news, out, news outlets saying, hey, stop talking about this. Stop talking about it. But they've lost the narrative, right? They've lost control. And so we have the Joe Rogans of the world that are you know, way more uh, influential than CNS anymore. So they can't control that narrative. And so in a war of information... The only way to win that war is to control the information. But the internet's taken that away. We have open monetary protocols with Bitcoin, open communication protocols. The, the internet's mostly decentralized and now with the rise of Nostra things like that. And so the, if they can't control it, if they can't stop it, then the only thing they can do is threaten you to kill you, right? A monopoly on violence. And so that's really where this restrict act, restrict act is coming in to kind of the point that Simon was talking about. Uh, this is going to be the next attack vector. But I think... Going back to like a global viewpoint, taking out your just U.S. centric viewpoint from a global standpoint, the rest of the world doesn't care, man. They, they need something like Bitcoin and it's going to continue to see demand. The more they try to restrict that, the more they try to uh, censor, the more they try to control, the more they try to do uh, capital controls, the more demand will be back to the pain rising high enough.
0: The th- I, I could, couldn't agree more. Jack, I, I, you haven't spoken yet. Uh, you're the only one up here. I don't know if you have any uh, particular thoughts there. Maybe it's uh, not, not with us at the moment. So uh, anyone else have any? Sp- Dave, I see you uh, opening your mic. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's some incredibly good points that just got made. And I, I just wanted to say three things. First, you know, on the narrative side. You know, everyone in Bitcoin loves the, you know, the the first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. You know, me we get that. The, what people always forget is the then they fight you phase uh, has a couple of phases to it. I mean, it is the, you know, having to, you know, come out, listen to the arguments. They have some quality, etc. And then eventually you start hearing retreads and things getting more and more shrill and more and more hysterical. As my mentor from college, uh, you know, Doctor Zarevsky at Northwestern used to say, when people start resorting to increased volume and increased numbers of arguments as opposed to high quality arguments, you know they know they're losing, and we're seeing that. You know, the New York Times piece yesterday was like ridiculous uh, in so many different ways in terms of lack of data, etc. You know, we're seeing that constantly. The anti crypto army and starting a pack. I mean that shrieks of desperation. You know they understand what's on, what's at stake. the The fact is that there's there's two things that are going on, and and everything that we've talked about. The first is from pricing perspective. You know a lot of your your users want, a lot of your listeners want to talk about price predictions. Well, the important thing about Bitcoin is it's still so small that effectively it trades like an option on its future adoption. And you've talked about a couple of things that are very important. If we really believe that the the zero outcome is completely gone, and I, I actually do, but, you know, a lot of people don't. If you think that that tail is chopped off, then by definition, the entire value curve of Bitcoin, where you look towards digital gold and you look towards, you know, potential hyper-Bitcoinization, you understand what the upside could be. Uh, sorry, there's work people outside my office and I have my dog here, so I, sorry about the barking. But it, it does increase the valuation and makes me more bullish. The, the other big thing.
3: Still the there? Thing
6: that, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. Sorry. No problem, the, other thing, the, other, the other big thing that's going on is there. there's real risk to the United States right now. And people don't like to appreciate this. But the fact is the, the comment that just got made that the world doesn't care is clearly true. And it's also true that the U.S. has gained enormous standard of living benefits by having financial market primacy. Now, when I talk about that, I don't mean it because we're the biggest and the best and you know whatever. I mean because U.S. capital markets have been the most efficient capital markets in the world for decades. And when you're the most efficient, it means more companies come here to raise money. It means it's more investable. It means jobs. If the digital asset revolution does what I expect it to do, and the U.S. doesn't participate we're screwed. And all of those, those decades of gains from having financial market primacy could go away. That's the real risk. And that, that's, that's what's going on here. It's like if the rest of the world embraces Bitcoin, embraces DeFi, embraces many of the things that are going on, we lose. And people always need to worry about that. And at the end of the day, I think that, that cooler heads will prevail and it will get realized. I just don't know, if it'll, you know when. That's obviously the big problem.
3: yeah I think um the the reacting should be um deeply concerning as either an American or non-American um and and I'll bring it back to the quote that you like uh, that you like I, that I often give um Scott is that every day America's looking more like China and China's looking more like America, and I think they're going to meet somewhere in the middle with a central bank digital currency. I love it. Yeah, um, I could hear you
0: say that a hundred times.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, and the re- react is is certainly an an indication of that. Um, you know the sorry restrict react um, restrict. Um, you know the. It, 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 I don't think it's an attack on Bitcoin. Maybe I could be ignorant. Um, I think it certainly is attack on crypto. Um, but if you can make that distinction. I think I think the U.S. maybe has. Either I'm completely ignorant, and and the U.S. is just going to you know control crypto, launch CBDC, a- and then come after Bitcoin, um, and claim it's no longer a commodity or something. But I don't see that happening. I think it, if that was going to happen, it would have happened. Um, but you know, I, I I always look for the for the events which I can't quite predict or forecast. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's a major, major concern. It, you know, it's an extension of the Patriot Act. Um and uh yeah, it 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 is a major, major fundamental shift. And even if you see, you know, I, I've always from, from culturally taking a step back when, when I spent a lot of time in China, I, I saw a very capitalist economy at the regional level. Um, and I saw like Shenzhen grow in Hong Kong, which are, I know is a special region, but I lived in Hong Kong and spent and spent quite a lot of time in China. Um, and I just saw the the level of innovation that came from the capitalism. But once a company became a tech giant, it became part of the government. Um, in, in America, it's kind of the opposite that you have the ability to become a, a tech giant or a billionaire, um, but then you get to control the government once you get there. And so I think it's pretty interesting that you're seeing even the, the leaders like Elon Musk wanting to take a step back on AI and try and pause that. Uh, that, that type of thing combined with the types of policies uh, that are coming, uh, that would be a massive movement to America looking more like China um, and losing the race. And, and I think that's a really real, a real, a real thought you know on, on top of all the, the de-dollarization yeah
0: yeah mark mark Yusko, i saw thank you uh, i'm glad you were able
5: to do hey guys one. you uh, must have, sorry, heard I was Dave Didn't have good connection uh, uh jack one second r- right the point. Jack, uh, jack. the same one point second, i wanted now. to discuss specifically god's talking jack i don't think you can hear him you might want to come back and come go down and come yeah, back up
0: yeah jack's muted uh, i had a chance earlier uh mark Yusko. Uh, uh, if you can hear me hopefully you guys can hear me um you must have heard Dave Weisberger invoke you earlier because he mentioned you and that you uh, magically appeared. But I know you have a lot of thoughts on what Simon just said. You've had some takes on the uh, Restrict Act and Patriot Act and uh, how sort of out front and obvious it is what they're doing now. I would love your take. No, here. look, I I um I think it's called restrict
8: for a reason. Uh, it's it's you know I I joked that look when when W was proximate to the Cheney presidency, uh. He at least was, you know, patriotic enough to hide the the negative intent of what the Patriot Act really was—a surveillance act uh, on on citizens um, without, you know, rule of law applying—to uh, call it the Patriot Act. Oh, we're patriotic because we give up our rights and you know the name of this war on terror, which was never a war in the first place. Um, now we've got. Something much more serious that people just don't seem to be paying attention to. Uh, you know the idea that that you can be jailed for the possession, not even the use of, just the possession of a quote unquote banned app with, with no due process is really I mean it's it's Orwellian in in the worst form. And I don't really think this this bill is going to pass in its current form. But the fact that someone actually wrote it is is frightening. And if you're not terrified by this, you're just not paying attention. So, but look, I I, I love Simon, and I agree with most of what he said. The reason I gave him a thumbs down was I actually think they are coming after Bitcoin. I just think it's it's hard to come after a decentralized uh, network, a global network, you know. Bitcoin doesn't give a shit if the U.S. bans it. didn't give a shit if China banned it. doesn't give a shit if Iceland bans it. It is a decentralized network that is not reliant or dependent on any one nation state, irregardless of what that nation state believes is its influence in the world. I agree that we are making critical errors because the people who are in charge are not the idiot politicians, but the even more idiot Billionaire class, the WEF class, that has had a plan since their formation in 1971. This goes all the way back to 1971. This has been a long time coming that, um, you know, they rest control through cross ownership of all the assets. Just pull up the Bilderberg chart sometime. And now they've got a competitor in the sense that, um, a truly decentralized monetary network that allows us to move value out of the corrupt system, which has been stealing our wealth since 1913. I mean, look at, look at every chart from 1776 to 1913. A dollar's worth a dollar. A pound was worth a pound. Everything was was stable. And since 1913, everything's down 99 point something percent. Why? Well, that was the plan. It's, it's not... Like I said, they used to hide it behind fancy words. Now it's just right out there in plain sight. And, you know, CBDCs, I, I love the point I think Dave made that, that we're, we're coming to the same place. And, you know, people say we're becoming China, China's becoming us. China is the most capitalistic nation on the planet, full stop. The whole fear of the CCP is, is nonsense. They are capitalists. They have a 30-year plan to be the... Superpower. The capital T, capital H, capital E. That is their plan. They believe in the mandate from heaven. They believe in Confucianism. For 1800 of the last 2000 years, they have been the most powerful superpower in the world. They had a 200 year experiment with Marxist philosophy that failed, and now they're back to Confucianism. They will achieve that goal. And we're playing catch up on CBDC and surveillance, and 15-Minute Cities. I mean, some of the most dystopian, crazy nonsense bullshit I've ever seen, and people are eating it up like it's like it's candy. Anyway, I don't feel strongly about any of that,
0: so thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, go ahead,
5: Brad, or, or Mark, either one of you guys. Go ahead, Brad, and then Mark. Yeah, no, I just— I just wanted to kind of put something out there that, you know, the way I feel about all of this, Scott, I feel like that there's, there's a real strong bias by a lot of people that invest in crypto companies and DeFi and stuff like that. I can clearly see that you guys really get Bitcoin and you understand the value of Bitcoin and the importance of Bitcoin, but... It seems like there's not been capitulation on any of the flawed like logic that led to the bubble of the 2021-2022 crypto, you know, Ponzi palooza that we saw and, you know, the explosion and the, all the rehyponsification and all that stuff that was promoted as as financial innovation. Did you say rehyponsification? I did, yeah. That was the financial innovation of, of DeFi, <laughs> rehypothecation. Yeah, but you know, I made that one up. I made that. One up. We, should, <laughs> like we that. should
8: debate this because you know the 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 backlash against rehypothecation and fractional reserve banking, I think, is is entirely misplaced. In the absence of it, there is no growth,
5: and but that's why I said rehyponsification. Because yeah. okay. rehypothecation fair. by itself yeah. is not necessarily bad, but I, like this is something also that like Bitcoiners talk about. You can't have some Bitcoiners think you can't have debt in a b- hyper Bitcoinized world because Bitcoin is money. So in a hyper Bitcoinized world, there will be no fraction. The distinction to make no is yeah, I, I, in
3: in the existing monetary system, and, and I, I did actually write a book on this in two thousand eleven the governments will transition from debt-based money to debt-free money, which is CBDCs. But people, because money creation is combined with the process of issuing loans, people think you have to have credit creation in order to have money, which is true in a fractional reserve banking system. But even in the the crypto space, even DeFi, um, which was an iteration on top of peer-to-peer lending, which was a 2006 innovation before Bitcoin. Um, as long as there is sufficient money in a system, uh, you, can, you don't need banks to create money. Banks creating money is simply a free market way of determining the money supply by, um, by uh, you know, creating money every time a bank wants to issue a loan. And it gives a super subsidy to the private banking system because they benefit from all the interest of the money creation but it also creates systemic risk um, but you can still have a money supply which is less free market and I'm not advocating for this and still have all of the lending without combining the process of creating money and issuing loans and that's not necessarily that, you'd ha- that debt is bad, it's combining debt at the same time as issuing a loan that creates this the fractional reserve system, and that was simply because it was really a way of mining fiat currency into existence based upon the the demands of a debt based system and and Keynesian like stimulus. Um, but you can still have no debt Simon. Hold on, combining- Simon,
8: I, I think this is maybe the most important point. I'm 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 prone to hyperbole, so I will I will super hyperbolize here. I think this is the most important point of all points that gets argued on Twitter and, and in spaces. This is, a, to, to me, the point, right, which is, look, gold is, is money. Money is an asset that exists in the absence of a liability. Therefore, gold has been chosen for 5,000 years to be that. All of the rest is, is not money. It's currency. Everything else that's built on top of gold, gold sits in central vault banks, Around the central bank vaults around the world, and all of the other currency is backed by debt. So, in the absence of banks and fractional reserve creating that currency and that the that lubrication for for trade, help me understand how we get, don't go back to the dark ages if if all you want to do is turn physical gold into digital gold. And everybody turns their their value into into bitcoin and then we put it on a ledger and we bear it in our backyard we're fucked right we, we just we have
3: that it's called gold yeah so if you had a central bank that creates the money supply and you only had one money supply called m rather than m0 m1 m2 m3 m4 and no one in the money supply and having to use open market operations and um manipulate the interest rate in order to control how much um, debt is created in the system um, then you can still have a money supply that reacts to inflation and deflation which is why I think a CBdc is inevitable don't like it it's um, one of the biggest infringements upon life liberty and freedom um, and a radical shift in in the way that um, but you can still you can still take away the ability for banks to create money, replace it with a central bank digital currency. You could even let banks go bust if they take too much risk, give everyone an app to download the wallet and and just have technology performing the function of banking. But you would still need, that that would create currency and currency you don't know the supply. And so therefore it would be manipulated by central banks a lot easier and probably a lot more stable and a lot easier to place blame rather than having all these systemic risks in in the system the the fractional reserve banking i i, I, I describe it as a free market way of money creation by combining debt uh to issue the supply of but new isn't that digital superior currency. simon to to a government controlled money supply i think so but 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 the problem is is that you end up in a system with more debt than money. And so someone always needs to take on the new debt. And so you find a new Ponzi scheme in order to supplement. So you get individuals in debt. Then when they're all maxed out on their credit cards, you get corporations in debt. When they're all maxed out, you get governments in debt. And when they can't keep the system alive, you put it on the central bank's balance sheet and then they deleverage the system by wiping out Yeah, the, the Jubilee. Absolutely, they just codes. Jubilee. We
8: were in 1840 London.
5: So let, let me read this little piece from the Bitcoin talk forums that Hal Finney wrote back in 2010 talking about this specific issue. This is what I always come back to when we get into these debates about a, a fractional reserve or not. And it's 100 it's percent accurate what Simon was saying. We don't really – it's not fractional reserve banking that's the problem when you really dig into it. It's, it's really – it's fictional reserve banking. The money itself is the problem. And they've bastardized the whole fractional reserve system and the Keynesian economic policies because they've just taken the worst parts of everything and and combined it together. And then that's why where I was getting to is what all of these DeFi companies and crypto companies have done is they've taken the worst parts of that and then put that on blockchains and called it financial innovation. And really, it's it's like things that blew up in previous bubbles and historical cycles – that were way too leveraged and over leveraged and toxic and derivative they've just found a way to make money with that by adding tokens and yield to it token mining and put that on blockchains and called it financial innovation i think we we do a huge disservice to bitcoin and financial literacy and global like wealth inequality when we lump bitcoin in with crypto and we've kind of created the problem where elizabeth warren is now building an anti-crypto army (laughs) <laughs> because, yeah, like you guys were talking about earlier, Scott, with the progressives, why would a progressive be against this? Elizabeth Warren was part of the group that was, you know, bailing out Wall Street on, you know, not on her, um, like, she didn't want to do it, but it was going to blow up the financial system. She was in charge of administering TARP. And then she created later on, she she was tough on, tried to be tough on Wall Street banks with like tough regulations. And it all comes from a place of financial literacy and and wealth inequality. So like the the progressives don't want to see big corporations and too big to fail banks, just treating people like profit meat and just leeching value from society without contributing anything of real value back. And that's what crypto has turned into. Crypto has just taken all the worst parts of (laughs) what Elizabeth Warren had to deal with in the collapse of the banking system in 2008 and put it on blockchains, and now it's it's kind of spilling. O- it has been spilling over into the traditional financial system. So it's no it's no like shock that you would be against crypto. And unfortunately, Bitcoin gets slumped into that. But let me just read this thing from Hal Finney. He says um, on Bitcoin banks, actually, there is a very good reason for Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin backed banks to exist, issuing their own digital cash currency redeemable for Bitcoins. Bitcoin itself cannot scale to have every single financial traction and transaction in the world be broadcast to everyone and included in the blockchain. There needs to be a secondary level of payment systems, which is lighter weight and more efficient. Likewise, the time needed for Bitcoin transactions to finalize will be impractical for medium and large value purchases. Bitcoin-backed banks will solve these problems. They can work like banks did before nationalization of currency. Different banks can have different policies, some more aggressive, some more conservative. Some would be fractional reserve, while others may be 100% Bitcoin back. Interest rates may may vary. Cash from some banks may trade at a discount to that from others. George Selgin has worked out the theory of competitive free banking in detail, and he argues that such a system would be stable, inflation-resistant, and self-regulating. I believe this will be the ultimate fate of Bitcoin to be the high-powered money that serves as a reserve currency for banks that issue their own digital cash. Most Bitcoin transactions will occur between banks to settle net transfers. Bitcoin transactions by private individuals will be rare as well as Bitcoin-based purchases are today. So, I mean, that was just an interesting thing to hear from, from Hal Finney, who many people consider to be one of the people that could be Satoshi. Well, 100%. Orange.
8: And I, I, I think he's, he's right about 90-plus percent of it. I think the issue is we actually know how the free banking era worked out—it's not pretty. Um, you you need a lender of last resort. Um, what you don't need is the uh, the fictionalized need for inflation and a inflationary money supply. Um, that's that's the problem. But you know the free banking era in in you know the eighteen sixties was a unmitigated disaster and nightmare, and it was precisely because everybody did. Issue their own currency from companies to states to uh, even small groups. So, uh,
3: sounds like coin market cap. Yeah,
5: and and really what, what <laughs> that's funny. While I was reading that, I was like, you know what? Like all these blockchain layers and all this stuff—they're kind of like banks that <laughs> have fractionally yeah. reserved their Bitcoin treasury, no, no. And, and done credit expansion <laughs> into the crypto crypto exactly. ecosystem. And and what
8: if you think about it, right? Gold. Is is money? We we can all agree the gold is money, right? It's the only asset in the world that exists in the absence of a liability. That's easy. Gold is the base layer, and what Hal's talking about is gold functions as the base layer of money. We don't we don't transact in gold. We don't banks don't transact in gold. They accumulate gold by trading it for paper. And there's the great picture of you know the Chinese throwing paper across the the bridge and, and you know americans throwing gold back at them and we know who wins that but the the key is that we created these layers on top of that right there's fedwire there's ach there's visa the visa network right most of us transact using a little plastic card well how often does that in, interact with the main chain once a month once a month it interacts with fedwire and money is transferred from you know the bank to to Visa and you, and you settle up. The rest of it's just stored on a COBOL based mainframe computer, which is frightening to think. Um, but it's those layers and Bitcoin as a base layer of money, great, awesome, replaces gold, is lighter weight, is more efficient. I quote Hal all the time on that. But what has to happen on top of it is fractional reserve lending to create credit and demand and growth. And I, I ask this question all the time. I, I go into spaces and, and you know, everybody, I mean, maybe not everybody, but everybody I know has some portion of their wealth in Bitcoin or, or, you know, other stores of value. Some have gold, some have whatever. But a whole bunch of their money's in the bank, okay? So, and they're like, no, it's, well, yeah, it is, okay. So, um, you've given up your rights to that money by putting it in the bank. But we all do it. Okay, fine. Name a country that you would go live in today that either does not have or has a poorly formed fractional reserve banking system.
3: I'll wait all day. Yeah, so Mark, Mark that's why I'd say um, th- this is such an interesting conversation, and gets to the core of it. And that's why I'm so grateful Bitcoin came around because it gave everyone a framework to actually have these conversations that were so hard to have before Bitcoin. Um, but probably, you know, gold people had these conversations. Um, but the that's where I think who is going to create money is the question. And fiat currency, sorry, let's not call it money. You, you make the important distinction that uh, money you can own is not somebody else's liability. Um, so you've got gold and you've got Bitcoin, which are the tr- the traditional and the neo exit from the financial system. Bitcoin, easier to custody and all the reasons why we're here and discussing it and more auditable. Um, But the real conversation about who creates money is simply a central bank versus a bank. The current system is uh, the money supply is determined based upon the central bank trying to manipulate how much money a bank creates and filling it with quantitative easing when the system breaks. The new system, which I believe to be a central bank digital currency, which, by the way, I'm not an advocate for, I just think it's inevitable, predictable, and guaranteed, um, is that the central bank creates the money, not backed by a debt, but just simply based upon a simple money supply of how much um, money with more transparent inflation, deflation targeting and take away banks' ability to create money because it always um, ends up, with the central bank having to bail out the system because of the the Ponzi economics of having more debt than money, and the money, the the problem of having more debt than money is a Ponzi scheme, and so it always has to end the same way. Which is why every fiat currency has to go through the, the cyclical nature, and um, and I think the U.S. is at that point. Um, so it's just a question of freedom versus and and i do agree fractional reserve banking is creating money based upon how much uh, people want to borrow and therefore it's more free market than a central bank creating money based upon a transparent money supply but not that by debt but you deleverage the system and then everyone can operate a peer-to-peer lending fiat currency um and you can even have uh if you still i mean ever inevitably the rules just break and you end up with fractional reserve anyway so it's almost like an impossible problem to solve
0: so i think the conclusion is buy bitcoin <laughs> and,
3: and on that note
0: guys i do have uh, to go record a podcast so uh, that means that this space is unfortunately has to come to an end i, I appreciate all of you uh, these things are such a uh, winding and long conversations. It's so incredible where we started with Mike Novogratz and uh, Chris Giancarlo, of course, and ended with this incredible conversation about freedom, Bitcoin, and of course, fractional reserve banking, all of our favorite topics. So I want to thank everybody who's still here, Mark Yusko, Simon, Brad, uh, of course, we had uh, Northman Trader, Dave Weisberger, Mark Moss. Yeah, guys, we, 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 uh, we try to go big here on Tuesdays. And next week will be no exception. I've got Raul Paul. Uh, joining next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time all of these guests as always will be will will be welcome to to join as well I uh, hope you guys all enjoyed this once again the recording will be live uh, both here and on Spotify Apple music everywhere else so please hit that little arrow button and share this with everyone guys thank you so much been an absolute pleasure I know I learned a ton I hope all of you did too peace out everyone see you uh, maybe tomorrow on YouTube and next Tuesday on spaces bye